We're focusing on Joseph for about the last 13 chapters here. Now, I would like to say that we're past all the family drama, but we're just getting into more family drama here. As you know the story of Joseph. Now, Joseph is a great study. I am thoroughly looking forward to this. I had a lot of fun here with this chapter tonight, and I hope you do as well. So I really don't know how far we're going to get. I really want to get through all of chapter 37, but there's so much to talk about because we're not only going to study chapter 37, we're also getting into Joseph's life. We have to have a little bit of a background on this. So there's two passages of Scripture that we're going to refer to as the bookends of Joseph's life. First one is in Psalm 105.18. Psalm 105.18. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but it's kind of an interesting verse because this really sets the tone, sets the tone for what we're going to be talking about. Psalm 105.18, it's going through a little bit of a history, if you will, of the life of Israel. So it talks about Joseph. It says right here, he sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They hurt his feet with fetters. He was laid in irons. Now, That phrase, he was laid in irons, literally means his soul came into iron. Depending on your translation, that phrase has laid into irons. There are certain translations that actually translate that, that his soul became like iron. Which means the Lord used this time in Joseph's life when he was in prison to harden him. Not harden him in a bad way. Not like a hardened criminal, but to prepare him for what he had in store for him later on. Now this is vitally important because you are going to go through trials and tribulations in life and as you go through trials and tribulations in life you're going to say why now as you say why the enemy likes to get in there and plant little seeds of doubt if god was a god of love he wouldn't allow this to happen you must be doing something awful horrible and sinful that's why you're failing some of that may be true (laughs) but ultimately the lord also allows difficulties in your life to make you harder to get you ready for what he has in store. He told Ezekiel, before he sent him out as a prophet, he goes, I need to make your head as hard as flint because you're going to go deal with Israel who's already hard-headed. I've come to the conclusion in ministry, when I go through difficult times, it's usually God's way of saying, James, you've got to toughen up a little bit. There's something coming up on the horizon, and I need you ready for this. So Joseph going to prison for a crime he did not commit was a purposeful thing by the Lord to make his life hardened for what God had in store. I just want to share this, and I'll probably share this at the end. I got this out of a commentary I was reading. Because it goes to our second passage here real quick. And this one's in Genesis. It should be easy to look at. Genesis 50. Genesis 50, verse 20. This is the famous line of Joseph at the end when he finds out or reveals himself to his brothers after they sold him into slavery. Genesis 50, verse 20. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about as it is this day to save many people alive. Those are the bookends of Joseph's life. First verse, Psalm 105. God allowed these difficult times to make his heart like iron, to prepare his soul for the difficulties that were coming because the Lord wanted to use him. And then the last verse is Genesis 50, verse 20. Joseph carried no resentment, no bitterness, no nothing. Now just think about this. This is what this commentator said. We thank God for his great plan. If Joseph's brothers never sell him to the Midianites, then Joseph never goes to Egypt. If Joseph never goes to Egypt, he's never sold to Potiphar. If he's never sold to Potiphar, Potiphar's wife never falsely accuses him of rape. If Potiphar's wife never falsely accuses him of rape, then he's never put in prison. If he's never put in prison, he never meets the baker and the butler of Pharaoh. 
If he never meets the baker and the butler or Pharaoh, he never interprets their dreams. If he never interprets their dreams, he never gets to interpret Pharaoh's dream. If he never gets to interpret Pharaoh's dream, he's never made prime minister. If he's never made prime minister, he never widely administrates for the severe famine coming upon the region. If he never widely administrates for the severe famine coming upon the region, then his family back in Canaan perishes from the family. Famine, excuse me. If his family back in Canaan perishes from the family, the Messiah can't come forth from a dead family. If the Messiah can't come forth, then Jesus never came. If Jesus never came, you are dead in your sins and without hope in this world. So the Messiah coming is important because Joseph went to prison. And you look at this great plan. And the whole point of it is this. This is a span of thousands of years. And you know, I never really stopped and thought about that. If Joseph never went to prison, then A, didn't happen, then B, then C, then D, and it can go right down the line. The point of it is this. Some of you are going through trials and tribulations in life, and right now you're asking why. The why may not be revealed at this moment. And to be quite honest, the why may never be revealed to you. The real question isn't why. The real question is, Lord, what? What do you want me to learn from this? I think too often we focus on why when really it's, Lord, what can I learn from this? What was the purpose of this with Joseph? His heart became like iron, prepared for the big things that were coming that the Lord wanted to use him for. So that was the preparation. Those are the bookends of Joseph's life. God allowing difficulties to prepare him, and Joseph at the end saying, I hold no bitterness and I have forgiveness. What an amazing example. Let's jump right into this. Genesis 37, verse 1. Now Jacob dwelled in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. This is the history of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers. And the lad was with the sons of Bela and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph bought a brad reporter them to his father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. Also, he made him a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and he told it to their brothers, and they hated him even more. Now a couple points here we need to make. First off, this phrase, hate. Verse 4, they hated him. Verse 5, they hated him even more. Verse 8, they hated him even more. So you start out in verse 4, I hate you. Verse 5, I hate you more than when I hated you. And by verse 8, I hate you more than the time when I said I hated you, and I even hated you more than that. It eventually reaches the point in verse 11, and his brothers envied him. Why did they hate him? Because they envied him. Why? He was dad's favorite. He was dad's favorite. Now, you've got to think that this, this family is at least 12 plus kids. We don't actually know how many kids, but we know the 12 sons for sure. We know Dinah the daughter, but the Bible says that Jacob had other daughters. So there's a large family here. Now, I don't know about you guys growing up. I grew up with two sisters. And I always had in my mind who my parents' favorites were, you know? And you always think that, don't you? I always knew my dad like my oldest sister, Janelle, and I always knew my mom like JC, and I was the child that wasn't wanted. I always knew that. And before you think I'm making this up, I wish my mom was sitting over there tonight because I remember one time talking to mom about when I was born because there's 13 months between JC and myself. And I remember talking to her about that, and she goes, Jamie, she calls me Jamie, she goes, Jamie, you do have to realize you were the oops baby. And I said, what? And she goes, you have to remember. This is, and I, you can ask her. She, I quote. She goes, you have to remember you weren't wanted. That's what she said. So I'm still in therapy over this. I'm working through it. <laughs> and I said, what are you talking about? Because at one time of the year, my sisters and I will be like, uh, you know, 37, 38, 39. You know, we'll be right there in order. She goes, do you really think I wanted three kids in diapers at one time? 
I never thought about that, but now that I'm struggling with these thoughts. So I always knew I was the oops, not wanted. I got that now. It took me a couple decades to learn it. But my point is this. Joseph was the favorite. Joseph got the coat of many colors. Now, this, this is kind of the rough part about translating from Hebrew. I know this has been ingrained into our mind, coat of many colors. We really don't know what it means. That's just what they translated. There's some different translations out there that are what are called literal translations. And instead of being a tunic of many colors, it literally is translated a long robe with sleeves. Now, you may say, well, what's the big deal? Long robe with sleeves. If you said, James, can you come over to my house to help you? Help. And I would say, sure, I'll come over. What are we going to do? And you would say, hey, i got a lot of hard work we got to do, so make sure you wear work clothes. If I would show up at your house wearing a suit and tie, I'm not dressed appropriately to work. Long robe with sleeves. That is not workman's attire. If you're living in the desert and you're out there taking care of animals and flocks and sheep, you would gird your waist, it would said. You would pull the sleeves up. You didn't have things long and dangling. So by having a long robe of sleeves, what is it really saying? I'm not expecting Joseph to work. Joseph, go chill out, watch some TV or something like that. You know what I mean? Why did the boys envy him in verse 11? Because he was dad's favorite. He was dad's favorite. So I hate to take away that picture of the coat of many colors. It could have had vibrant colors, we don't know, but it literally means long robe of sleeves. So his brothers hated him. Why else did they hate him? Verse 2, Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Joseph is a little bit of a tattletale. Now, this is the hard part about this. One of the things that we tell our boys is this. You've heard me say this at home with the five boys. I say, don't come and get me unless somebody's dead, dying, or bleeding. That's just my little phrase. Work it out on your own. Your brother's in the Lord. Your brother's in the flesh. Work it out. But the truth be told, it annoys me when I come and I get the report, Dad, you know so-and-so is doing this. But there's also a part of me that's like, well, I'm glad you told me. It kind of goes both ways. So Joseph... You know, you're, maybe you should keep your mouth shut a little bit more, but yeah, it's good that you did this. We don't really know if Joseph was a tattletale per se. Maybe this is something they really needed to talk about. It sounds like these guys were trouble. We know from studying out the Bible, they were trouble. Simeon and Levi were willing to take out a whole town, killing them. Reuben was willing to sleep with his father's concubine. We know that there's a lot of family drama. So something must have happened, and Joseph said, i got to go tell Dad about this. I personally don't envision it as, boys, I'm going to go tell Dad, and he runs. I look at it as dead. I think you need to know what the brothers are doing. That's the way I kind of take it. So they're envious of him. They don't like him being a tattletale. So three times, I hate, I hate you even more, I hate you even more. They hate this guy. They absolutely hate the favorite. Now it gets worse. He has a dream, verse 5. If I could go back in time, you'd probably want to tell Joseph, keep the dream to yourself. What happens here? Verse 6. He said to them, Please hear the dream which I have dreamed. There we were, binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright, and indeed your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us, or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. You know, the thing about these sheaves of grain, though, this is actually a dream slash prophecy. A lot of people believe these sheaves of grain represent the famine that's coming. And Joseph is their lifeline of food. So it's a, it's a famine, excuse me, it's a dream, it's a vision, but it also looks to be a little bit of a prophecy. Verse 9, then he dreamed still another dream and he told it to his brothers. Now stop right there. I have to take issue with Joseph. This is probably something he shouldn't mention. 
I don't know what's going on. I don't know Joseph's personality. You know, my third son, Kenan, really struggles with this idea of what is funny and what is not funny. He'll do something that just comes across as almost evil, mean, and he'll say, and he said, well, I thought it would be funny. And I always tell Kenan, I go tap him on his head, and I say, Kenan, God gave you a brain, use it, buddy. God gave you a brain, use it. I want to go to Joseph and tap him on the head and say, God gave you a brain, Joseph. Let, let's, let's keep this dream to ourselves. Verse 9, look, I've dreamed another dream, and at this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? We know this is symbolism representing the nation of Israel, because in Revelation chapter 12, when God describes Israel, this is how he describes them. So Joseph is having a dream of them bowing down. Once again, guess what happens? They bow down to Joseph. He saves them. He saves them. Verse 11, and his brothers envied him. But look at the second half of verse 11. But his father kept the matter in mind. That shows that Jacob here has at least a little bit of, okay, is this something more? So this is how we have set the scene. We have the bookends of Joseph's life. God is going to allow difficult times in his life because that prepares his heart for something bigger that's coming. He also holds no bitterness, no anger, no nothing at the end. He forgives them. We see he was the favorite. He was kind of favored and given a place of prestige, if you will. His brothers hated him. They envied him, but God had big plans for him. Now we have to get to what happened. Now, but before we get to that point, anybody got any quick questions, comments about any of this before we move on with the rest of it? Ryan. Yeah, you, we're reaching the point now where it's really, actually, easy may not be the right word, but you're right there, Ryan. It, it really gets to be a point where you can start now really keeping a pretty close chronology on this. Especially when we get to, um, well, I shouldn't say when we get to, when Joseph gets to Egypt, we can really start counting it back. Because they know how long the nation of Israel is in Egypt, and we can follow that. So, yeah, it kind of gives you a nice little mindset there. So that would be, what, quick math, what, 4,000 years ago? So, anybody else got any other things here before we move on? Marv. Yeah, that's true too. So, yeah, it's good to rub it in people's faces. You're better than them. I mean, that's kind of what it. <laughs> no, no, you, you bring a very valid point. And, and once again, we can't say for sure, but Joseph is one of those guys in the Bible, and I believe, and don't quote me on this, of the big wigs in the Bible. Joseph and Daniel, if I remember correctly, are the only two mentioned where you really can't find that they did something wrong. And a lot of people look at Joseph as a picture of Jesus, betrayed by his brothers, sold off to his brothers, but yet is the one that comes back and saves his brothers. So, you know, I don't think, I don't think Joseph was like rubbing it in their face. Look at the dreams I had. I don't think he was. I think his brothers just hated him so much and such an envious. I mean, remember this. This is a dysfunctional family. I mean, this is the definition of a dysfunctional family. And I've, we've done enough counseling out here. I know that when you start having mixed families come together, there's a lot of difficulties. You have one father, four wives, at least 12 boys, one daughter, and many other daughters. And you have brothers that are killing whole towns. You have a brother that's sleeping with his other father's wife. I mean, this is dysfunctional. So there is nobody to step up and say, hey, boys, all get along. Plus, 
There's probably a little bit of age difference here. Joseph is the second youngest. We don't know exactly how much older Reuben was, etc. There's a lot of dysfunction going on here. A lot. Ends peaceably, but it takes a while to get to that point. Anybody else have anything here before we move on? Yeah, Brock. That's a very valid point, and if you didn't hear that, what Brock was saying is kind of equivalent of someone come up and saying, hey, I just want to share how God has blessed me, and then we take that the wrong way and say, well, why isn't God blessing me? And I think of that passage that says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. You're right, the brother should have said, that's pretty cool, man, you know, the Lord's revealing this thing to you. Instead, it comes back to that verse 11, they were envious of it. Same thing still happens today, and Brock brings up a great point. When somebody is spiritually being blessed by the Lord, and we see them growing in the Lord, and we're not growing in the Lord, instead of rejoicing with them, we usually get a little bit of a chip on our shoulders. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to hear what you learned in devotion. We don't want to hear about how you shared the gospel with somebody because I'm mediocre right now in my faith and you being on fire makes me feel uncomfortable, so I'd like to stay away from that. It's a really valid point. Hopefully it doesn't lead to the point of murder and selling you as a slave, but it makes, I understand the point there. Anybody else have anything here before we move on? Alrighty, now let's see what happens. Verse 12, Then his brothers went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are you not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. So he said, Here I am. And he said to him, Please go and see if it is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring back word to me. So he went, to, excuse me, so he sent him out of the valley of Hebron and he went to Shechem. Now a certain man found him, and there he was wandering in the field, and the man asked him, saying, What are you seeking? So he said, I am seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they are feeding their flocks. And the man said, they have departed from here. For I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. Now I want to stop there real quick. So I just want to give you a little bit of background. We just read what? 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. Six verses, right? Why? This, this is what goes through my mind. I'm just going to give you a small hint of what goes through my mind when I'm preparing a message. I read 12 through 17, I don't know how many times. And I said, Lord... Why did you put this little story in here? You could have just simply said, Israel said to Joseph, go check the brothers, they're in Dothan, and Joseph went. So I'm, I'm always fascinated when there's like five, six verses here, and I read it, and I read it, and I read it, and I keep thinking, what are we talking about? So I just want to share with you, I think when you're reading the Bible and studying it, it's really easy to just read and say, okay, what am I supposed to get out of it? There's times where you have to stop and chew, and you have to stop and pray and say, Lord, there is a reason why you put this in here. I'm not seeing it at this point. Show me. And I really focused on 12 through 17. I just want to show you what I think the Lord is trying to say. I kept looking at this, and I kept thinking, they're repeating Shechem. Verse 12, Shechem. Verse 13, Shechem. Verse 14, Shechem. So I was reading through that, and I'm thinking, okay, why do they keep talking about Shechem? So I was reading this one commentary, and the guy just mentioned Shechem and bad things. And I thought, that's right. What happened in Shechem? If you go back to Genesis 34, when Simeon and Levi went and Dinah was raped, and they went into the town, and then they had everybody get circumcised, and they came back three days later and killed them, guess where that was at? Shechem. Shechem represents bad things. If you remember when we went through our study in Genesis 34, we said very simply put, stay out of Shechem. Don't go to Shechem. When you go to Shechem, bad things happen. God doesn't want you to be in Shechem. Where does God want you to be? He wants you to be in Bethel, which is the house of God. That is our lesson from Genesis 34. So, Joseph going to Shechem, if this was a movie, you would start hearing the little ominous music in the background. 
Don't go to Shechem. Bad things happen in Shechem. So we know something bad is coming. He's gone to Shechem. But then he goes to Dothan. Okay. Dothan is mentioned in verse 17. Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. Guess how many verses in the Bible have Dothan in it? Just two. It's only mentioned twice in the entire Bible. Joseph gets in trouble at Dothan, and the only other reference in Dothan is found in the book of 2 Kings chapter 6. And in 2 Kings chapter 6, it's the story where they're coming to get Elisha, and so they send the whole Syrian army after Elisha, and Elisha's servant completely freaks out and tells Elisha, we're all going to die. And Elisha has that little prayer, and he says, Lord, reveal to the servant what's going on. And for a brief, tiny moment, we get a glimpse into heaven, and you see the fiery chariots and the armies of heaven protecting Elisha. That happens in Dothan. Only two times in the Bible Dothan is mentioned. What does this mean? This is how my mind works. Joseph is going to Shechem, which is bad. It's very bad. And as he goes through Shechem, he ends up in Dothan, where it's in Dothan that the Lord reveals that there's more going on behind the scenes than you can ever imagine. What is God trying to tell us here? Joseph goes to Shechem. It's bad. He's eventually going to get caught. He's eventually going to be thrown in prison. He's going to eventually be accused of rape. This is awful. But we're also mentioning Dothan, which reveals there's more going on behind the scenes than what we realize. Some of you came in here tonight, and you have had tears, you have had trials, you've had tribulations, and you are secretly saying, Lord, why? You're in Shechem. Bad. It's not good. Let's get to Dothan and say, Lord, reveal to me what's going on. Help me through this. Now, some of you have come in, and guess what? It's a good season of life. I was just talking to someone recently out here at church, and they're going through a really tough season. And I was just praying, Lord, bring somebody into their life that can tell them, this tough season's only temporary. So you may not be in a tough season right now. The Lord may bring somebody into your life, and it's your responsibility just to tell them, hang in there, don't give up. You may be in the tough season right now. God is trying to tell you, when you go to Dothan, just trust that there's more going on behind the scenes than what we could ever imagine. Right now, for Joseph, this sure doesn't look good. And if we would just look at this chapter, we would have to stop and say, Lord, what are you doing here? This guy did nothing wrong, and now he's going to be sold as a slave. Let's see what happens here. We're running out of time, and I want to try to finish this up as much as possible. Verse 18. Now, when they saw him afar off, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Look, this dreamer is coming. Come, therefore, let us now kill him. Cast him into some pit, and we shall say, Some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben, oldest, firstborn, heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands and said, Let us not kill him. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him, that he might deliver him out of their father's hand, excuse me, out of their hands, and bring them back to his father. Verse 23. So it came to pass when Joseph had come to his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the tunic of many colors that was on him. Then they took him and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty, and there was no water in it. And then they sat down to eat a meal. Now we're just going to stop there real quick. This shows how much hate there, there truly is. Now we know how much they hate him. I don't need to pull that point out anymore. I want to talk about a couple quick things right here. Verse 22, Reuben. Reuben wants to do what's right. Verse 22, he wants to say... Don't hurt him. And he wants to say, verse 22, he wants to deliver them out of hands. He wants to take them back to dad. We know that. We also know from verse 29, Reuben returned to the pit, and indeed Joseph was not in the pit. It was Reuben's plan to say, basically, I'm going to come back and get him later. 
That was the plan. Well, the problem was this. Sometimes we have these great ideas, and we're going to do this wonderful, godly, great idea next week. Sometimes we've got to do it now. Reuben's plan was great. Reuben should have just stood up and said, guys, this isn't right. It's not right. I don't know how many times I've talked to people out here, and the Lord has really laid it on their heart. They really need to do this, and God has really told them. It's so clear. It's so evident. I say, well, I will pray for you. Diligence to do it. Thank you, Pastor. Talk to him next week. Hey, how did it go? I haven't done it yet. Well, wait a second. I thought the Lord lit a fire under you, and you had to go do it. Yeah, I know. I'm just waiting for it, and we like to do this all the time. Quote, the right time. Okay. Talk to him a week later. No, I haven't done it yet. About three weeks later, the fire is completely burned out. I think with Reuben here, he had good intentions. But what happened? James 4 says this. Anybody who knows the good they ought to do and does not do it to them, it is sin. So if you know what you're supposed to do and you don't do it, it is sin. It's called a sin of omission. You didn't do anything wrong, but that's the sin. You didn't do anything. That's the sin of it. And those are the tough ones, because when we commit a sin, it's obvious, it's easy, I should have done something different, Lord, I'm sorry, but sometimes sins of omission. I'm just a bum of a dad, I'm a bum of a father, I'm a bum of a husband. I'm not doing anything wrong, but you are doing something wrong. And we're running out of time, and I just got to share this real quick. It eats at you, you know you shouldn't be doing it. We were up in Toledo doing a hospital visit, and we were in a parking garage. Parking garage is so tight. We have a Ford Expedition. It's an SUV. It sits nine people. It's big. And so we always tell the boys, don't open your doors. We open doors. Because if you open doors, you're going to bump another car and it's not good. So I'm getting one of the boys out and the door's opening. I don't know if it's my fault, his fault, whatever. I look and there's a mark on the car beside us. And I stop and you think, okay, it's a tiny little mark. Is that a mark caused by us? Is that a mark that was already there? And you kind of are analyzing it, and you kind of want to take the door and say, okay, could it even possibly hit it? And then you reach a point of saying, no harm, no foul. Nobody saw me, right? So we just all go into the hospital, and it's eating at me, just completely eating at me, thinking it could have been us. It probably was us. Well, maybe it wasn't. And so we get into the hospital, and we're going to go visit this person, and we brought something to give to him. So we're in the hospital, and guess what happened? All seven of us are all in there. We forgot to bring the item. So that means somebody has to go back to the van. So I go back to the SUV, and as I'm going there, it's like God allowed this to happen to leave a note. You know, and I get back to that van, and I'm looking at the mark again, trying to convince myself it couldn't have been us. You know what I mean? I could have just left. Nobody would have saw it. Instead, I got the paper out. I put a little note on there saying, um, there's a mark on your door. It could have been from us. I don't know. Here's our phone number. I put Dawn's number down, not mine. But I said, here's our number. Sin of a mission. I could have just let it go. It was the wrong thing to do. Reuben, I'm going to come back. I'm going to come back, Joseph. Do it now. Do it then. That's the right thing to do at that moment. Real quick, because we're short on time. Verse 25. What are they doing? They're sitting down to eat a meal. Sitting down to eat a meal. Brother is in the pit. They're going to eat. Is that not cold and callous? Real quick, this is our last point. We'll have to finish up the rest of it. The rest of it actually goes to Genesis 39, so we should be okay. Real quick, they're going to sell him as a slave to the passing Midianite Midianite traders. But real quick, go to Genesis 42. This is what we're going to have to finish with. They're sitting down eating a meal while Joseph is in the pit. Cold, callous, don't care. 
What's really going on in their heart? Genesis 42. This is where they actually are in Egypt now. They don't know yet that Joseph's brother, that Joseph is their brother. They don't know, but they're still convicted. Look at verse 21 of Genesis 42. Then they said to one another, We are truly guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us. And we would not hear. Therefore, the distress has come upon us. Verse 22, and Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not speak to you, saying, Do not sin against this boy? And you would not listen. Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. Guess what's happening while they're eating their meal around Joseph? They're convicted beyond what they can handle. Now, they didn't show it. So real quick, and like I said, we're out of time. There's probably somebody you know in your life right now, and they are really giving you this great front. Cold, callous, don't care, tough, whatever. I bet you inside they're miserable. Because that's what the Holy Spirit does. He convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And when I run into somebody who has to try so hard to prove to me how they don't care, now you care. Simeon, Levi, all these rough, tough guys that were willing to take out a whole town and kill them, their heart was breaking as Joseph was in that pit and eating their meal. They just wanted to fake it. We just got to remember that. Hey, it's after 8. We got to get going here because there's a bunch of kids that are looking for their moms and dads. Let's pray.